0: You're just giving this one? Okay. Hello? All right. Um, I will be reading from 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 25. Concerning elders, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, and of his chosen angels, to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily, and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourselves free from sin. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise, also, deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, if you've ever used the term a clean bill of health, maybe you're less familiar with its origins. The original bill of health didn't come from a doctor's report, but it actually came from a time when ships would make their way into ports and they'd dock into a foreign land. And if you worked on the ship, you'd hope that after the ship underwent inspection that The harbor master would issue a clean bill of health. And this meant that no disease or contamination could be found either anywhere on the ship or uh, with anyone who'd been on the ship. Well, our churches are guardians of the gospel. We're called to protect something of eternal value and to keep that precious cargo intact. We do this by honoring the gospel and by honoring the lives that are built around that gospel. And as we follow Christ, our North Star, one way we protect the message is by upholding faithful leaders. We need men that will commend Christ, men who lead us in sound doctrine and sound living. But sadly, not every church that makes the journey will end up with a clean bill of health. So pastors bear great responsibility, and I believe that one day every pastor will give an account for how he leads. But I also think that our passage holds out roles that everyone should play. Every man and woman on deck has duties and functions to protect the church. And one of these duties that congregations share is Upholding the office of elder. So though today's passage is about elders, it's not just for the four men in our church who currently serve in that role. We all work together in honoring God by honoring the God-ordained office. And this means that no one gets a pass to hide out in the cabin Last week, if you remember, we saw that churches should care for those with real needs and how this is extended to widows. And today, we're going to continue this section of 1 Timothy, looking at how churches honor God and how they honor elders. If you come back in the next two weeks, you'll see us continue this section, seeing that care extends to bond servants and the rich. Elders and members must be working together, making sure that we don't, if you forgive the analogy, shipwreck our faith. But maybe you're here and you say, I'm neither of those things. I'm not a church member and I'm not an elder. Maybe I'm not even sure if I'm a Christian. Well, we're glad to have you here and this isn't the part where you have to find the closest exit. As we dig into truths about church members and leaders and how they work together, you might have more questions about why we believe these things or how they all fit together. Some of our elders and members will be out front after the service, and we'd love the chance to help uh, answer those questions and even just to get to know you. Though sin is deadly and all around us, God, in his kindness, is committed to keep us on track and to keep us from drifting off course. He's given us the instruction that we need as a church, and he's also given us plenty of his grace. So before we jump in, I'd like to call on the help of his spirit now. Our good and gracious Father, you are a rich fountain of life. In you we find streams of living water, God, you desire for us to come to you in desperate dependence. We thank you for your word and how your spirit is using it to shape us and to make it profitable for our souls. Even as that word is taught by less than perfect elders, we praise you, God, that we can learn from it together. So build us up today and make us wise. God, may you train us in righteousness. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you came without a Bible, you can find a couple copies in front of you. If you look at the one that says New American Standard on the spine and on the cover, uh, we'll be following along with that translation today. And uh, this passage is on page 164. We've been walking through 1 Timothy, and this is a letter from Paul, the apostle, written to Timothy. But it's not just a personal correspondence letter. It's applicable for the church in Ephesus and by all other churches by extension. This letter is written to show how Christians must act in the household of God. The church is the pillar of truth, and one way we guard the truth is by selecting godly leaders. And we appoint men who are committed to sound doctrine and sound living, but we don't just pick any men. In chapter 3, Paul will show us what to look for when affirming those who serve in actually both offices. If you remember, we defined elders as servant leaders, and we defined deacons as leading servants. Well, today we're going to return our focus again to the first of those offices, the office of elder. When I was a USF student, my mature taste in food led me to eat fresh probably a little too often. And you could uh, call the person assembling your lunch a fast food chef or a sandwich artist. And that's exactly how the New Testament will use words like elder and pastor. Uh, They're different titles, but they're the same role or office. Well, last week we saw how our Heavenly Father brings us together as a family and how our love and treatment demonstrates that we're part of His household. And today we'll see the care we show toward his leaders in the church. I'd like us to guide our time by looking at five different questions. Uh, So the first of those five questions is this. It's how should elders be appreciated? How should elders be appreciated? Beginning in verse 17, we read, The elders who lead well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. In most cases like this, the New Testament also uses the word elder in the plural. So the ideal isn't for one, but for multiple men to serve in that role. Your translation might say the elders who rule well. And because of this verse, some will think this is setting up two different categories of elders. So over here you have elders who are ruling, known as ruling elders. And over here you have teaching elders who are responsible for teaching. But I don't think the biblical model is to separate those into two different groups. And I think it even muddies the waters if we start to separate ruling functions from teaching. A few other places in this letter will use the word rendered as rule when speaking of managing household affairs. and Maybe that's why your translation might say those who direct the affairs of the church. And in a few verses, we'll also see how the whole congregation shares ruling functions. Elders guide and help govern and give counsel. They plan and prepare how to best protect the flock. But in all of these things, teaching is central to the work that they do. However an elder leads, it must be grounded in and guided by the centrality of the word. That's why in chapter 3's list of qualifications, if you remember, um, it said that all elders should be able to teach. That's the only qualification that refers to an elder's function and not his character. In the garden, all work was made to be enjoyable, but sin would add some difficulty to that work. Now work has to be done by the sweat of one's brow, and the work of an elder is no exception. God calls us all to work hard in whatever vocation we have, whether in the business world, in the blue-collar world, in the home The work-hard language suggests difficult, even exhausting labor. Pastoring can be both highly rewarding and also burden-bearing. That's why Richard Baxter would say, what is a candle made for but to be burned? The church shows double honors to those with double responsibility at things like teaching. On a team of elders, you'll have different men who contribute different gifts to different degrees. Some might be more skilled teachers or maybe have more responsibility preaching, but every elder is devoted to word, ministry, and prayer. This means that a closed Bible elder has no authority to stand on. There's many forms of teaching. It can happen in large and small settings. It can happen over the phone or across the dinner table, but preaching has a primary place in the church. Through it, our whole family will come together and sit under it we hear the world the word heralded announced explained and proclaimed and it's central to building up god's people we can praise god for the bibles that we have to study in solitude but i also think that public preachers can help inform our private devotion teachers remind us where we can drop anchor in the word when the world will toss us about Even when we think about our teachers in Covenant Life Institute and in community groups and the women who spend time preparing to teach at our women's events, it shows appreciation to all those teachers when we make it a priority to show up. Whenever we receive biblical instruction gladly, we make ministry labors a blessing. We don't just passively sit under the word as it goes out, but we feed on it and we share it with others. Since elders give their life to teaching and prayer, we also desperately need the prayers of our people. And some elders don't just need our prayers, but they also need to get paid. And I realize that some of these points might sound a little awkward coming from an elder, but thankfully, uh, this elder does not draw his salary from the church. But this idea of paying pastors uh, isn't my idea. And it actually wasn't Paul's idea either. We know that because Paul will ground his instruction in what Moses said and what Jesus said. So Paul holds out God's instruction through Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while it's threshing. And he holds that side by side with the words of Jesus, God's son, who said, the laborer is worthy of his wages. He makes... His point from God's law given to Israel and then follows it with Jesus' teaching that would soon be recorded in the Gospel of Luke. And I think that Paul is showing the early church that we can equally regard both the Old Testament and the New Testament equally as God's inspired word. The quote from Jesus comes from Luke 10 when he sends out 72 laborers from house to house. If you know the story, he sends them out like sheep among wolves and he gives them his authority to heal and to preach the coming kingdom. And he says that not everyone will receive their teaching, but some will receive it gladly. And those that do can uh, give them food and drink that his disciples are able to enjoy. And the reason is because the laborer is worthy of his wages. Maybe like me, you lack the agricultural wisdom of the ancient world, so you might wonder how to interpret the first quote from Deuteronomy 25.4. Well, some will say that this means God cares more about hard-working ministers than He does hard-working animals, but I think that's true, but there's also more to it. You see, oxen were an important commodity that the whole community would benefit from. They'd produce grain that everyone could eat and enjoy. And they walked along the threshing floor, separating the wheat from the chaff. And I'm reminded even in that how the word, when it's rightly divided, goes out and um, it separates those who trust in its wisdom from those who follow falsehood. If you think about a muzzled or starving ox, and I realize even thinking of a muzzle is not too hard for you and face masks today. Um, But a muzzled or starving ox could not eat and could not be sustained in its labor, which meant that the farmer couldn't make an income and the whole community would go hungry. We know the law wasn't ultimately given to protect animals, but to protect God's image bearers, the crown of his creation. And much like a muzzle-wearing ox, it makes no sense when a church tries to stifle or silence its pastors. These men need nourishment on the word, and not just nourishment on the word, but like all children, they need physical needs to be provided for that the church can can uh, lovingly do so. We see this dual focus on the spiritual and physical needs in 1 Corinthians 9, which is where Paul will quote this passage again. And there he adds that those who proclaim the gospel should also get their living by it. And then he adds whoever ploughs and threshes should do so in hopes to share in the harvest. Maybe you've heard the old quote, Lord, you keep him humble and we'll keep him poor but I think that's a sad quote not very funny and also not true Galatians 6, six says we share all good things with the one who teaches the word this double honor language actually emphasizes economic payment and there are many clear commands to compensate some teachers whenever possible we need to help and not hinder them Not all people in ministry will receive payment. In fact, not all apostles received a ministry through, or received an income for their ministry. In Acts 18, even Paul will go from bivocational tent maker to full-time ministry. And then he gives up payment in places like 1 Corinthians 9 that we just referenced, offering to preach the gospel to the Corinthians free of charge. Scripture is not going to give us a prescribed number or percentage for a pastor's salary since a pastor and his family's needs may vary and the church's resources might vary as well. And this also isn't suggesting a sliding scale where better preachers are permitted to live more lavishly. In fact, Titus 1 7 and 1 Peter 5 2 will warn that greed can destroy a pastor. But the greediness of unfaithful men, it can't keep us from being generous to those who are faithful. To be clear, this next statistic doesn't mark every member here, but the average churchgoer gives 2.5% of their income to the church, and that's a lower number than it was during the Great Depression. We're willing to send landlords' checks for housing, and we're willing to pay medical professionals to keep us alive. And when we do so, we're showing that that financial sacrifice is worth what they offer. I wonder if you were to diagnose your own heart where word ministry would be on your list of importance. In our covenant commitments that we make as a family, we we say that we'll contribute cheerfully to the needs of the church by the money that we're entrusted Every year, every member also comes together to vote to approve a budget that not only supports staff, but ministry needs both here in Tampa and worldwide. And with cheerful hearts, we can do these things rejoicing, knowing that where our treasure is, our heart is. Therefore, we can freely give in faith. Well, after looking at how elders are appreciated, in our second question, we'll ask how should elders be held accountable? How should elders be held accountable? Verses 19 and 20 say not to accept an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses, and those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so the rest also will be fearful of sinning. Ephesus has been met with some leadership letdowns. Falsehood has been making the rounds, and some teachers have been getting swept up into fruitless discussions and strange doctrines. If you remember Hymenaeus and Alexander, Paul didn't wince words when he talked about them. He said he handed them over to Satan. Well, the same's true in every era where the gospel will be challenged by counterfeits and competitors. And it means the task is for churches to undergo the painful experience of removal in those cases. Well, the removal of these leaders might have left some feeling skeptical. And I wonder if when we see poor examples in the world out there, if it gives us a similarly low tolerance. Do we always feel on guard or are we unforgiving of a man's imperfections? So how do we listen to real warning signs and make sure we don't follow leaders blindly? How do we lovingly submit to and defend those the Lord raises up in a leadership climate like today? It's a healthy concern to want healthy leaders, but we also can't start a magnifying glass ministry where we start to dissect every decision that's made. You know, elders will lead in ways you don't agree with, and they might see things differently than you at times. But being slow to submit or becoming a fault finder will bring harm on the church. Critical thinking can be a virtue, but a critical spirit is toxic. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13 will say, To respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So when you hear a friend have an unbridled tongue, or you hear them start spreading around hot gossip, do you follow the teaching from last week to confront them, seeking to restore? This need to gather multiple witnesses will serve the church in a couple ways. First, as we've been seeing, it protects elders from undue criticisms or attempts to discredit their ministry. But it doesn't just protect the pastor from harmful members, it also protects the church from unfaithful pastors. Paul reinforces Christ's model for church discipline, showing that this extends to our leaders as well. Jesus taught in Matthew 16 that all church members are his key holders, binding and loosing on earth what's bound and loosed in heaven. And then a couple chapters later in Matthew 18, 16, he says, when we find someone in sin to approach them, then if they don't listen, we take one or two others along so that every matter can be established by the testimony of two or three. This process actually goes further back again to the Mosaic Law Um, In Deuteronomy 19.15, we see Israel's instructed to let every matter be established by the mouth of two or three witnesses. And the surrounding culture also followed a similar process in the days before security cameras or DNA evidence. A claim couldn't hold up in court unless you had eyewitnesses. And you needed multiple witnesses to agree on the charge. Well, last week we saw there's a real weight behind rebuking, how we have to do it in love, speaking the truth. When we confront another person, we don't just gather the facts to make a case, but we examine the log in our eye first, and we go to them respectably, courteously, hoping to understand. A plurality of elders helps build within itself a level of accountability. And I praise God for the ways that Justin and John and Bob consistently call me up to a higher standard and these god-ordained means of accountability and corrective discipline will not just apply to our members but our elders and as elders we're often helped when members come to us to settle concerns in godly ways especially when the disposition is to ask questions before rendering a verdict i pray that your pastors will be accessible and approachable and offer clarity in cases where it's needed I pray that our elders and members together will have teachable hearts. But a lot of churches have fallen when a community of people is robbed of the important responsibility of corrective discipline. Some churches are also willing to overlook sin and elevate their leaders to untouchable. So if any one of us ever strays from sound doctrine or stays in unrepentant sin, you must go to us. And if we don't turn in repentance and follow in obedience, the time might come to make the private matter public. So if an elder's life ever shows serious denials of the truth or serious denials in a standard of godliness, it's your job as church members to remove us. Paul's okay to use fear as a motivator here. He says these examples should strike fear in the rest. The rest doesn't just refer to other elders, but the whole church, since it is a public matter. I'm reminded how no man of any platform is immune, and that should make us fearful. Christ wants his bride to be pure, and so he commands every member to follow through on his commands. And corrective discipline is an act of love. And another way that Christ is committed to our purity is not just through Uh, this process of corrective discipline and accountability, but also by telling us when to find and appoint qualified leaders. And that's our third question. When should elders be appointed? In verses 21 and the beginning of 22, we read, I solemnly exhort you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus and his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Do not lay hands on anyone too quickly and share responsibility for the sins of others. Here we see the focus shift from the church in Ephesus to Timothy again, Paul's true son in the faith. And there's also a shift in the tone. This is a solemn exhortation showing great gravity. Paul's instructions here and throughout the letter are not to compromise these standards. And the laying on of hands here again will refer to the act of affirming and appointing men. After removing leaders, there'd be a temptation to rush in anyone to fill the office. But in our church and in the churches we plant, we have to make these decisions carefully with much prayer and much counsel of one another. Picking leaders with partiality or favoritism or doing it hastily might even make us partners or co-laborers with the sins that follow. That's why in chapter 3, verse 6, the risk was too great to appoint new converts who might get puffed up and fall into condemnation. To add to the gravity, there's even supernatural implications to appointing and releasing leaders. Paul will say that these instructions are signed, sealed, and delivered by the Father, Son, and the elect angels. If you wonder who... This is in the heavenly court of the chosen angels. I'd invite you in your own time to look at 2 Peter 2.4 and Jude 6. And this refers to the heavenly beings that didn't rebel with the father of lies. Satan will love it when churches begin to compromise here, when we focus on competence over character, when we start settling on men with winning personalities or men who draw a crowd. One way we safeguard ourselves against these things is by running every elder and deacon through a process. Uh, everyone in the church has an opportunity to nominate someone, and then that person will fill out an assessment along with their spouse in some cases or people who know them well. And then the elders will begin to determine their readiness based on places like 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And then we start to walk with them through any areas of needed growth, both Doctrinally or in one's character. Just a quick aside to the men who aspire to the office of elder. You might tell people you're called to the ministry, and some would refer to that as an internal call. But the feeling of being called is in a silver stamp from the Holy Spirit. We also need that internal desire to match the external call of a whole church coming around that person, affirming they're ready. Or maybe you're a member who's never nominated anyone because the risk just seems too great. But we should remember the litmus test for an elder or a deacon isn't perfection. If we looked for people to meet impossible expectations, no one could ever serve. So by God's grace, we look for people whose lives are worthy of imitation, people who are giving away sound instruction. And our care in these things both protect the people who are brought forward and also the church from many errors. So we said no leader is perfect, which means all leaders will struggle. So in question four, we'll ask, where can elders find care when they're afflicted? Where can elders find care when afflicted? Verses 22 continues with the command, keep yourself free from sin. And another translation says, keep yourself pure. In looking after the church, Timothy must also watch his own life and doctrine. He must set an example in speech and in conduct and love, faith, and again, purity. Timothy's attentiveness to these things will even inform how he's able to protect the church and teach the church. This theme of purity runs throughout the Bible where we see Israel's leaders called to be set apart and distinct. And sometimes when the leader begins to bow to other gods, the impurity begins to affect the whole nation. A little leaven corrupts the whole dough. Timothy was a second-generation Christian with ties to an apostle, and yet he's told he must stay on guard. Even the most highly visible leaders will find themselves highly vulnerable to attack. And the mental and physical struggles that a pastor might face can't lead them to give up the spiritual fight. Like what Charles Spurgeon says on this point, he says, good men are promised tribulation in this world and ministers may expect a large share often to learn sympathy with the Lord's suffering people. And then through these things he says they become more fitting shepherds to an ailing flock. Elders are tempted in many ways and yet they're called to set a standard for purity modeling godliness for every member and like with every Christian the way we face these trials will equip us to serve others some of you have been on the edge of your seat waiting to see what to do with verse 23 and I think if you've ever doubted that the Bible's authentic you just can't make things like this up it says don't go on drinking only water But use a little wine for your stomach and frequent ailments. Before anything else, do you see Paul's care and concern for his friend, for his ministry partner? He's not just shepherding him through church problems, but he's also concerned about his own health. Timothy's not just told in his ailments to pray and wait for God to heal, though, of course, we could, we should pray for the good physician's healing. He also points him to God's common grace, and you and I can joyfully look to things like doctors and medicine as God's gift for healing. Timothy is a real person with real ailments. He's timid and looked down upon, and he's trying to put into order a less than perfect church. Ministry hasn't made Timothy rise above weakness, but perhaps it's even exposed some weakness. Any pastor can find heavy stresses leading to heavy strains, and at times ministry might feel like clear blue skies. On other days, though, it can be partly cloudy with plenty of thunder. This verse has puzzled a lot of people, but the context helps make a world of difference. And if you're someone trying to proof text your idea or your understanding about alcohol, you could go to this verse and try to make a case. But as we saw earlier, we accept all God's counsel. We let Scripture interpret Scripture. Even in this letter alone, this is the third reference to wine. In chapter 3, Paul said both elders and deacons should be not given to drunkenness. And that same call is not just for every elder or deacon, but every person, as we see in places like Ephesians 5.18. It also helps us to know these false teachers were spreading lies of asceticism, telling people to abstain from certain foods in order to earn the favor of God. Perhaps this teaching or maybe even a good desire for purity has led Timothy to similar extremes. So in chapter 4, verse 4, Paul would tell him that everything created by God is good and not to be rejected if received with gratitude. Throughout antiquity, wine was appreciated for its health benefits as well. And my study led me into the weeds of seeing how wines, different wines would be chilled or heated up to treat various ailments. And sometimes it would be used to treat stomach problems like digestion. It's not the alcohol of, as an object that's sinful, but it's the person who wrongfully uses it or abuses it. Next week, in a similar way, we'll see Riches can lead some people to ruin. And like with money, alcohol can be a snare if we let it lead us to commit other forms of evil. Again, I've been moved to see how Paul, like Christ, is willing to get low to become familiar with his friends' weaknesses. Pastors, like all people, don't need more fans, but we need more friends at times. And I'm so thankful for my wife and the other elders and men in my community group, and friendships throughout this church—that um, just people who are willing to to walk with me. Even lately, as I've been, uh, the Lord has been kind to remind me of my own weaknesses, my own humanity. If 50% of pastors are quitting by year five, churches can help build cultures where we protect our elders. That's the reason that we give staff elders. Uh, sabbaticals and why we give lay elders limited terms for serving and then they roll off and can come back on in some cases well maybe you're in a hard season of your own and wondering where to go maybe you're in a marriage that's in constant conflict or you're offering up desperate prayers for a child's conversion maybe you desire a spouse or a job or maybe like Timothy you're facing health issues Whatever your ailment may be, you might be tempted to stay closed off or even to hide or forget your humanity. But as members, we can open ourselves up to one another and let others move towards us in love. And I think in selfishness, we can often forget or neglect when family members are facing difficulty. So we can be good counselors like Paul, who's willing to counsel his friend. Whatever ailments our members face, let's be that hospital of care for one another. And as elders and members, we can work together, helping one another run grace-paced ministries. Well, every question up to this point, at least in part, is focused on elders. So now we're going to zoom out from elders and focus in more closely on everyone with question number five. Question number five is, where is freedom found from sin's effects? Where is freedom found from sin's effects? Maybe you've noticed how this passage is filled with warning signs about the consequences of sin. It shows the fatal conundrum that we find ourselves in because of sin. We see sin affecting leaders and the whole church. But first it begins in the heart of every person. So verses 24 and 25 warn us the sins of some are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Then likewise also, deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. This description isn't about something the church can coast through or keep under control. That's why whenever you read the headlines about a leader or a church, nine times out of ten, it's not a good news story. And I know for a lot of you, this isn't just social media sound bites, but you could share stories about leaders you looked up to or ministries you were a part of. We've seen teachers abuse money. We've seen others become domineering. We see men like Hymenaeus and Alexander all the time filling pulpits, spreading falsehood. In sin, an elder can fail to honor his duties, forgetting or forsaking the people that he's called to lead. Sometimes, sin will lead a leader to burn out, or bow out, or leave behind broken-hearted families or broken-hearted churches. But again, this problem isn't just for pastors. It doesn't just affect pastors. It's every member as well. We saw how members can be slow to submit or how they can be quick to question and accuse. Maybe you're someone who's storing up money for safety or blowing it all on self. Every year, sin will pull apart thousands of churches as elders and members fail to uphold their duties to love one another and uphold one another. In sin, we can either arrogantly hold or make light of our place in authority We can ignorantly oppose or neglect those in that role. Whenever we do so, we ultimately oppose the one who leads us with perfect, loving authority. And when we disregard God's instruction for church order, we favor the wisdom of the world instead. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 5 says, when the Lord comes, he'll bring to light things now hidden in darkness and disclose the purposes of the heart. So if you're tempted to think you've built up immunity towards sin, don't underestimate how sins of the age or sins in the church can affect everyone, spreading like wildfire. And no person can posture forever, and our projections will only fool others for so long because a day is coming when every private action will be made public. Hebrews 9.27 says all people are destined to die and face judgment and your deeds of the flesh will lead you down a dark road toward death. If you meet God still in your sin, your penalty will be his righteous wrath poured out on you. But thank God that he cares for those in need. Thank God that he cares so much that he'd enter history to solve the sin problem. And when the light of Christ breaks in, the darkness cannot overcome it. You see, Jesus Christ would take on the weakness of human flesh. Our good shepherd and our wonderful counselor would spend three decades living a life of perfect honor and good deeds. He'd carry the burdensome weight of ministry, and yet he'd do it without sinning. He'd proclaim an exclusive message that separated the wheat from the chaff and the sheep from the goats, and in doing so, the unrighteous rulers would try to muzzle or silence him. Christ was so perfect that not a single person could bring an accusation against him, and yet in the end, he'd be rebuked not by one assembly, but by the whole world. Jesus would deny the same treatment that Paul offered Timothy. Timothy. They'd offer him a little wine mixed with myrrh to lessen the pain and yet he wanted to suffer as our substitute so he wouldn't take it. Instead, Christ would take the wine mixed with bitter gall that would prolong his pain and agony for us. Yet the worst drink of all was the cup of God's wrath which he drank down to the dregs. And when Christ would breathe his last they would bury his body and all would seem hopeless for humankind but after three days in the ground the man of sorrows would become our victor he'd get up fully alive defeating death now the invitation is for every wrath deserving sinner to throw ourselves on his mercy to turn from sin and to turn from our best efforts at doing good If you place your faith in Christ, your sins will be placed on him and his righteousness placed on you. Through faith in that work, you can know God no longer as your judge, but you can know him as loving father and wonderful counselor and perfect pastor. These gospel truths, church, are so rich that even the elect angels long to look into them. So friends, if you know Christ remember that this work has already been applied to your account. You can rest today knowing that his good deeds are sufficient for you. And you can rejoice on the last day too, knowing that your record has been made perfectly clean. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says, we're created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So don't think you have to walk in these things church to earn God's favor let them instead be an overflow of your new nature and when your life displays the light of Christ the world will see his spirit at work in you and then one day sin will no longer be knocking will be made like him and get to enjoy him all of us desires holy leaders serving over us in the church But by his spirit, everyone who's been redeemed is free to live a life of those same good deeds. Just as every human body needs good food and exercise to come home healthy, it takes many members in a church body to come home with a clean bill of health. So let's orient our lives and our leadership around God's instruction. And let's raise up new leaders, and when we find them, to honor them and keep them healthy. Let's be a place where every member and every leader is caring for one another and holding one another accountable in love. And as elders and members, let's live in gospel unity together, knowing that ultimate honor is given to our triune God. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for... Your word, help us now abide in you and help grow us into the good deeds that you prepared us to walk into as part of your family. You've shown us ways that elders and members work together and how the care that we show one another ultimately goes back to you. Help us love and protect those that you raise up and make us watchful against sin as we strive together in holiness. And in the next few minutes, we ask that your spirit would show us how you want us to respond.